Friends, welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast here in the week of September 7th. John Eldridge in the studio with me this week, Blaine Eldridge, normally heard on the And Sons podcast, but Blaine and I, a couple years ago, did a series together in here on Envy and enjoyed it so much and found it to be so helpful to you all, our listeners. We came back in and we did a series on the world, which feels super relevant now. So if you haven't listened to that series on the world, I think that was like a summer ago or maybe two now. I don't even remember. Dog years. Yeah, dog years. Anyway, we're back in because we have a new series cooked up for you or on the stove that we are currently cooking up. So before we introduce the series, I want to say something about human nature because it does tie directly into what is it with us and how did my immaturity serve me during the pandemic and how is it serving me now? And so what I want to ask is, what is it about human nature? I... I had an injury a couple of years ago. I was actually trying, I was doing some pull-ups and I had shifted the, whatever, the angle at which I was doing the pull-ups at. And it was brand new to that muscle group in my elbow. And I sprained something. I hurt a tiny muscle or ligament in my elbow group. And I knew I had hurt it and it bothered me, but I ignored it for months. And the basic rule of physical therapy is if you ignore it for months, it's going to take months longer than it needed to, to heal, right? Like something that's true about virtually all problems. (laughs) Yeah. Stitch in time kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. Stitch in time. So I did finally go in for physical therapy and it was months, extra months of therapy on this little muscle. And I'm like, what is it with me that I just, I still want to be inconvenienced with it. And I've noticed it recently. I went ahead and kind of went in and got some food allergy testing because the food allergy thing is kind of going through our family and the world. And it's helpful to know, hey, do you have a gluten intolerance? Hey, are you, you know, is your body not enjoying dairy? You know, are you not benefiting from the foods you're eating? Are they actually harming you or making health more difficult? And so sure enough, it turns out I have after all these years, uh, an intolerance to wheat. And part of me is like, I don't care. I'm going to eat it anyway. I'm just going, what is it with human nature? We do this in relationships. We certainly do it with our health, right? People know it's good to take their vitamins. They know it's good to exercise. We don't do it. Oh, this is the, well, this is a core dimension of Paul's riff on the flesh versus the self which is a really kind orientation to human nature. And you can picture Paul sitting down with you on the other side of the table and going, okay, so listen, there is an internal war in you and you won't want to do the things that you think you should do. That are good for you. And you will try to do good things and find yourself not doing them. And you will find yourself trying to avoid things that are harmful for you and doing them anyway. So it's important as you begin to plan your life that you account for that reality. <laughs> we are a civil war. We are a civil war. And, and we do believe the heart is good. 
and plenty of teaching on that here in our library of resources. Not going to go into that here, but we still are in internal civil war. And some of that has to do with brokenness, and some of that has to do with sin, and some of that has to do with simply immaturity. Just we haven't developed the muscle groups and the faculties that allow us to live maturely in a particularly difficult relationship or with a new set of health demands in our life or with the new you know, world that we're living in and what that requires of us. So ambivalence and avoidance, right? Really common psychological terminology, okay? Uh, avoidant disorder, like, yeah, it's your basic thing of I'm going to stay away from things that make me feel uncomfortable and stress me out and might expose me, and I'm going to stay where I feel safe. Oh, yeah. I mean, the insights from the field of psychology on this are so interesting. In most cases, people would rather avoid inconvenience or avoid discomfort than be happy. And... (laughs) That's a that's an alarming yes. thing. The civil war, the external war, there's a lot in the larger story that accounts for that. Yeah. Uh, that is that way for a reason that's not just humans are weird or that's a better way to survive. Really? That's a better way to survive? I don't think that is. Yeah. I yeah. go, wow, that is crazy. Uh that given the choice between avoiding a hard conversation with your wife and the kind of glimpse into eternity that is resolution out of a hard conversation, nine people out of 10 will say that it's better to avoid the hard conversation. Yeah, yeah. So here's Jesus on being a house divided. This is in Matthew 12. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? You know, is this this the promised Messiah? That's kind of the reference there in the language. Is this the one? The coming king of Israel is going to restore everything to us? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Now, he's not cursing. He's not condemning. Often what Jesus is doing, he's just describing reality. He's pointing out something that's important to know. (laughs) It's like, this is obvious. Let me point it out, okay? Houses divided cannot stand. This, This ambivalence within us is such a part of human nature, and it's so relevant to the series that we're about to get into because the series has to do with Hebrews 6, 19. We have a hope that is the anchor of the soul firm and secure. It is a spiritual lifeline reaching right into the very presence of God. C.S. Lewis wrote in, in a wonderful little essay called The World's Last Night, these thoughts, this paragraph that I, I want to read to get us kicked off here. There are many reasons 
why the modern Christian and even the modern theologian may hesitate to give to the doctrine of Christ's second coming that emphasis which was usually laid on it by our ancestors. And yet it seems to me impossible to retain in any recognizable form our belief in the divinity of Christ and the truth of the Christian revelation while abandoning or persistently neglecting the promised and threatened return. Quote, he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, says the Apostles' Creed. This same Jesus, said the angels in Acts, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Hereafter, said our Lord himself, by these words inviting crucifixion, shall you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And Lewis concludes his opening with this. If this is not an integral part of the faith once given to the saints, I don't know what is. O-M-G. <laughs> right? If we can just riff on that, I mean, get real nerdy, there's a field of study that relates to the nature of story. And one name that's used for it sometimes is narratology. And one of the observations of people who study stories is that events in a story change the nature of reality in terms of the story. And so what Lewis is pointing out is that when you remove the anticipation of the imminent return of Jesus, you don't just kind of water down the story that you're living in. You actually lose a core element of the reality that you live in. And, and therefore change your reality. And therefore change your reality. But to go, the return of Jesus is one of the primary colors that creates the palette that lets you see the world. And so without expecting and desiring the return of Jesus, you can't see the world rightly. And see, here's the thing. We can't even bring this up. I didn't even start the introduction with saying, hey, we're going to do a new series and it's on the return of Christ because of the ambivalence because of human nature, because of house divided, because right now most of our listeners are going, oh, I was really hoping they were going to talk about human nature and this house divided in me. And actually we are, but listen to this. Revelation 22 is the last chapter of the last book of the entire sacred canon of scripture. And the last sentences of the last chapter, of the last book, of the entire canon of Scripture, go like this. Look, I am coming soon. And there's an exclamation point there. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the 
the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. And then there's a little bit of an interlude of a warning about adding or taking away from this. And then it concludes with this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. What I want to point out is the church is crying out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, at the end. Yes. And I am personally really looking forward to the restoration of all things. I, you know, I have had to do good work with the ambivalence in me, but I don't see it. I don't see the church crying out for the return. You go, wow, this is a big deal. This isn't a little deal. This is Lewis's point. You can't ignore this and retain Christianity. Your point. You can't ignore this and not change the reality of the story you're living in. Oh, or even see core dimensions of the story that you're living in. But yes, if you do a sermon series on the return of Jesus, you are relegated to a small sect of prepper Christians. You're really weird. (laughs) And if you admit... On the other hand, that, yeah, Jesus is coming back, but we have to focus more on on the here and now, and it might be thousands of years. We might colonize other planets before Jesus returns. That's kind of a cool, satisfying thing to say. And I know from conversation with my peers that they feel a sense of relief when they discover churches or Christian leaders that— believe or say something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we're going to get a little nerdy in some of this, but can I riff on that for a minute? There is nothing in scripture that talks about the restoration of other planets like Mars that we have colonized. It doesn't say Jesus returns to the earth and to Mars or to space stations or like folks, that is science fiction. That is not part of the story, whatever you're hoping for in terms of a planetary evacuation, it isn't to a space colony. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you do know if you're a devoted listener of the Wild at Heart podcast that I think that in the restoration of all things, we'll colonize other planets and explore the universe. It's a matter of timing. Exactly. So the thousand-year thing is way off. Okay, so what we began was talking about human nature and ambivalence. And what we thought would be really helpful and honest to do is to take some time to be honest about ambivalences around the return of Christ and address them as lovingly and as carefully and as thoroughly and scripturally as we can. So we're going to summarize in this episode where we're headed and some of the 
some of the genuine ambivalences because we get it. We 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 want to say we hear you. We we've had so many conversations with dear dear friends who have revealed to us their various ambivalences, and we've actually recorded some of those. We're gonna we're gonna play one in a moment, but you know, just to kind of address things like, but there's still so much I want to accomplish in this life. Like that ambivalence, like, whoa, wait, wait, I, I don't want, I don't want Jesus to come back just yet because, you know, yes. fill in. Oh, there are so many of these. I mean, there's the one that eternity isn't really appealing or doesn't really make any sense. Yes. And ever since Aristotle wrote the poetics, we've had the framework of a beginning and a middle and an end. And that's how we make sense of things. And so when it's beginning, middle, end, infinity, yeah. there's just this kind of fuzzy yeah. obscurity to eternity yes. that's not desirable. Yes, 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 yes. Right. Eternity or whatever's next, it, it just feels so incomprehensible. It's not helpful to me. And then there's the ambivalence of, whoa, whoa, like, I don't feel ready. I, ooh, for Christ to come back, there's just so much in me that hasn't been, I signed up for the maturity thing. I want my character transformed. My life's embarrassing, okay? Can I just admit that? I don't, like that, that one. Oh, yeah, okay. Another one, the sense of judgment, meaning, the judgment of Jesus seems like a threatening event. Mm-hmm. Battle of Armageddon. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Like, there's two pieces of this. One is that the end times, as they're described in the Bible, seem really scary. Like, that would be a scary thing to live through. And I think that there's something in people that goes, I hope it's a future generation that has to, I think, live in a cave in the hills. How does it work? Yeah. yeah. So there's the fear. Yes. And then there's the, Wow, at the return of Jesus, some of the <laughs> some of the most difficult things in Christianity become unveiled, like who gets eternal life? And what about the people that I love who don't know Jesus yet? What happens to them? And as long as Jesus is not back, like we can rest in that not being resolved. Yes. But it will be resolved. Something will happen, and that feels very threatening. Yeah, no kidding. That was a conversation I had with a very beautiful saint and very, very deep follower of Christ is, I can't go there yet. I can't let my heart go yet to the idea of Christ returning because my kids don't know him, and I can't bear the thought of heaven without my children. And that source of ambivalence is real and genuine, and we want to respect it. We want to unpack it. How do we deal with these types of ambivalences that leave us a house divided? Oh, and you you mentioned this one already, but I was talking to another young gal, peer of mine, over the weekend about the return of Jesus. And you want to guess what the objection was? Oh, marriage. It was marriage. Marriage or children. It was marriage or children. Yeah. And to go, yeah, our desire for 
marriage or to experience something we haven't experienced yet in marriage, or if we have children, or if we have children, grandchildren, is a real problem because of that really pesky verse in Matthew on, oh, in the middle of a riff on something else. Yeah. Jesus goes, yeah, oh, but you'll, you won't be given or taken in marriage. You'll be like the angels in heaven, back to the point he was making. A phrase that has caused more anxiety among Christians than many yes. of the other things Jesus says about the restoration. Yeah. yeah, and thus an ambivalence there. And we get it. We hear it. That's real. Let's speak to that. Let's unpack these things. I actually want to go back to an early one you named. What we're doing is summarizing where we're headed, gang, and then and then we'll start unpacking some of this today. But the damage that the zombie apocalypse scenario has done to our view of the future. Like we live in the age of the end of the world movies, right? You know, all those, the world blows up, the core of the world overheats. No, we go into a new ice age. No, it's the zombie thing. And, and you know, we're all living in caves, you know, on rations and our last three rounds of ammunition. That, that. Yes. Oh. oh, yeah. Satan's vision of the end of the world, which can we say has the exact same features as the accusation leveraged against people who are considering unpacking some unseen part of their life with someone, whether yes. it's, yes. I'm finally going to talk about my trauma with a therapist, or I'm finally actually going to let my wife in on a part of this story. And, you know, the enemy's threat is, do you want to do that? You will lose everything. You will live in a nightmare. And I go, yeah, all it is is it's the relational version of the enemy's description of the return of Jesus, which is you will lose everything right. if you choose to desire the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, right. It's the distortion of the end of the world. And I love N.T. Wright's little quip on that. He says, the end of the world is not the end of the world. <laughs> like, it, like it literally isn't the end of this world. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So ambivalence is created by that. Ambivalence is created by, there is a huge, huge vein in human nature that basically goes, oh, I don't want to be that guy. Yes. I don't want to be that gal. Oh, I don't want to be that person that's talking about the return of Jesus because who knows, right? And then you're the wacky, goofy one and, you know. Add updates in the Bible. Who wants to invite that person to their cocktail party? Who wants to have that person to their beach picnic? Like, oh, not that, right? Oh, man. Who wants to be that religion? I mean, this is more than an individual problem of <laughs> I don't want to be yes. the prepper who yes. told his yes. friends that Jesus was coming back and he didn't. But more broadly, we don't want to be the Christianity. Yes that's expecting something that's probably not going to be happened. I mean, it's really fascinating. C.S. Lewis says you should read old books because they'll make different kinds of mistakes and they'll take different things for granted. Yeah. And reading old books on the pendulum swing on the expectation for the return of Jesus between it's coming back now, 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 and there are good parts of that and there are parts that that's, mistaken in sort of how it's supposed to be. And then it swings all the way over to 
Jesus is just coming back just, just eventually. And it's so perfect for this conversation. I was with another friend, and she was going, you know, in my education, my view of Revelation changed. And they said it's only apocalyptic literature, meaning it's only a text that unveils human nature and kind of shows you the typical things that happen to humanity. Yes. But then she was going, but there also is a progression and a momentum to the book of Revelation that is more like a timeline. And she was talking about Daniel, and she goes, Daniel is apocalyptic literature that also, with an incredible amount of precision, described particular events that were going to happen. Yes, yes. And it, the book of Daniel culminates in the return of Jesus, but it describes these things that happen in the meantime. Yes. And, and it's that, whoa, you right now, we're at a moment, I think, in Christianity where for the most part, people don't want to say that the book of Revelation describes a pattern of events with a momentum that leads to the return of Jesus at a certain point in time, not just like the general return of Jesus to the story. Yes. Yeah. It's not all metaphor, folks. There is actuality to it. I love the way you said that. Not only do we not want to be that guy or that gal, it's, oh, don't start talking about that. We don't want to be that Christianity to the world. One of the things that's happened to Christianity in the last, what I would say, maybe 50 years is we have had to surrender our A-game. And we have had the desperate, desperate desire to be the hip church, to be the relevant movement. This is very sincere. I'm not mocking this. The earnest desire to be, no, 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 we have the best possible, you know, education program for your children. No, we have the, we offer the best marriage counseling at our church facility. No, we, we are involved in global hunger relief. No, we are, right? Yes. And all those things are in the gospel and all those things are good, but we have surrendered the A game by not talking about the thing. Exactly. Because we don't want to be that church that says, actually, there is, there is a culmination of events and it's it's right around the corner. Oh yeah. And oh, there's it's a great book by uh, theologian Nigel Bagar. Uh, it's called Behaving in Public. And what he points out is that any time you isolate one part of the Christian story, you lose something. And so it's just that of well-intentioned people have said, no, 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 no. Christianity has a lot to say about justice, and in fact. Christianity has a lot to say about justice, but when you just start doing that, you actually remove the transforming power of the restoration of Jesus. And so his, yes. it's a thing called narrative integrity, where it's like, if you want to change the world and speak to the human heart, you have to tell the whole story all the time, including the return of Jesus. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And then um, let me name one more ambivalence that we want to address. And it was actually something you brought up, Blaine, as we were mapping out this series on huge sheets of post-it notes. And you paused. And do you remember what you said about people's ambivalence of Jesus? Oh, yeah. Well, this was something that I discovered myself, actually. That I went, 
One of the great problems with the return of Jesus is it's the return of Jesus. Not God generally. It is this person. It is the God Jesus. And it's not only that we don't love Jesus the way that we should. It's that we actually hate Jesus. And it's that unresolved things in our story have sown disappointment that has turned into bitterness, that has turned into anger, that has actually turned into your hatred of Jesus. And I realized that when I actually discovered some of it in myself, and it made me realize that I don't think I've had a season of healing with a person or done some kind of intense prayer at an event that hasn't included the need to address the person's hatred of Jesus and to go, no, you're not horrible. There's not something wrong with you. Things have happened to you that have been probably devastating over time. And it has, as it would in any relationship, poisoned the trust that you have for this person. And that unresolved anger makes it really hard for you to want this person to come back to be king? Yes, right. So life produces in many of us a profound ambivalence towards Jesus himself. And so, of course, we're ambivalent about his return because we're ambivalent about him. So this is where we're headed, gang. And before we wrap up this week's introduction, I want to share this from a very dear friend, a, a beautiful woman with a very rich spiritual life, someone who has experienced some really exquisite things with Jesus, but someone who's also experienced life like the rest of us do on the planet that's filled with disappointments and heartaches. And we were talking about the return of Christ and the sense that many of us have that the return of Jesus very well may take place in our lifetime. We will be the generation to see the culmination of all things. And this is what she said. As far as Jesus coming back soon, that's actually been hard for me to hear. I haven't lived yet. I just got my brain back a year ago. I haven't been in love or had a family. I haven't nurtured friendships. I haven't fulfilled my mission. I haven't discovered my artistic voice, honed my craft, created films, or started a production company. I haven't bought the homes Jesus has shown me. I've lived in so much failure for the last 20 years. I've thought maybe I can accomplish some of these in the next 20 years. But for Jesus to come back before that, and for me to step into the other side to have the tears wiped away instead of rejoicing and hearing, well done, my faithful servant, is heartbreaking for me. I so appreciate her honesty. Yes. I mean, at least she's willing to put it out there and name the ambivalence. And friends, I think that is part of what we want you to do as you walk with us through this, is to put some words to the ambivalence. Why does the return of Jesus, the imminent return 
of Jesus feel like loss? That is a huge question. And what she named so well is that there are things that we want to experience still that feel very specific to this moment in time. And I have those where I go, oh man, it would be so incredible to take my son to Coulter Bay. And inside, yes, it'll be there at the restoration, but there's a certain sense of, I guess that there is a quality of goodness to this dispensation that we lose mm. at the restoration of all things. And I've experienced or that this. it seems that we lose. Oh, exactly. I, we're going to argue against this and unpack this, but just addressing the, yes. wow, yeah, there are right. lots of things. And then I've got a novel I'm working on. It feels like it's only, if it only works in this situation. And I would be bummed if Jesus came back and I hadn't finished my novel. Or then he snaps his fingers and it's done. And that just feels like such a violation of the process and of creativity. So she names this dear, dear, dear one, names a couple of things we can speak to right away. The idea of there were houses that Jesus has showed me. She had, she had like dreams and visions that, that she would have a house one day, an actual home, a house, that she purchased out of her hard-earned wages. And go, friends, you understand in Matthew 19, when Jesus is speaking about the palingenesia, when he's speaking about the return of Eden, the restoration of this actual planet, this earth, he includes houses. Like yeah. he, he literally names houses. Okay, yeah. And to address the finger snap thing, man, <laughs> there's so much to say on this topic. But the finger snap thing of you wanted a satisfying culmination to a story that you were living with God, and it doesn't feel satisfying if Jesus returns and you had $10,000 of your down payment saved, but now all of a sudden, dude, you have a mansion and go— uh, the word that Jesus uses, receive, in that Matthew 19 passage is lambano. It's a Greek word. And it is a very intense word. It means to take hold of. And it's something you do when you're finally given permission to do it. And it implies a process because when Jesus says, if someone tries to sue you and take your coat, it's if someone tries to sue you and lambano your coat, mm. so go, it's not, if someone tries to sue you and receive your jacket, it's like, if they get permission to finally do this thing and step kind of unfettered into the story, so to go, yes, there are houses there and they're not bestowed in an unsatisfying way or in a way that contradicts everything Jesus was doing before that. Friends, this is so important that we name why are the ambivalences there? What are your hesitancies? 
and to go into the scriptures and go, that is addressed. You know, she names really the cluster of most of them that we're going to go through in the series, but the idea there were actual things that Jesus had promised. And then just her gifting, her calling, her career. And, you know, in Revelation, when it says in the New Jerusalem, and the kings of the earth shall bring their treasures into it, like the whole idea that your created calling was never meant to be limited to this life. Oh, <sighs> the, again, it's the finger snap thing. It's the, it's no, 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 no. When Isaiah says they will rebuild the ruined cities, right? They will recover the places long devastated that you're calling, you're gifting. The process of gifting is not just a finger snap in the coming kingdom. At the return of Jesus, your gifts and callings are needed and fully employed. Yeah, not only that, but were originally intended for that story. And there are so many things that feel so specific to this, to the dispensation after the fall and before the restoration of all things. But something that will give you a lot of compassion for people is to realize that when prisoners have been in bondage for a long time, Something happens, and I was, (laughs) around COVID, I started reading on this because I was going, what's going to happen to people? And I just went, how is prison survivable? And I went, the discovery is, oh, it's not. People get through it by shutting down massive segments of their humanity. Everything from how they perceive in their bodies to how they think to whether or not they're empathetic, and to go, what you see happening to prisoners has happened to the entire human race. Yeah. And something has happened to you over time by living in a situation for which you were not originally intended. Yep. But when your gifting was not made for a fallen world, your gifting was made for a restored world where you partnered with Jesus. Yes. That's an incredible concept. Yes, yes. And, and the point being that the very things that that this dear friend is naming, these things have produced an enormous ambivalence in her that she's doing everything she can to overcome, but they are addressable. There are answers to these And we need to carefully and slowly unpack as many of not just hers, but the collective ambivalences, some of which we've named today and some of which we'll we'll continue to name through the series. So Dallas Willard's, one of his main things that he was trying to communicate was the teachings of Jesus and of the entire Hebrew and New Testament canon is that the person you are in the universe that currently exists will go on. It isn't the bait and switch. It isn't the big swap. Thus, N.T. Wright, the end of the world is not the end of the world. There isn't anything like a zombie apocalypse. There isn't anything like total devastation and loss. There There isn't the finger snap. Whatever it is that feels to you like loss, friends, I guarantee you, has somehow been distorted by bad theology or personal disappointments or the work of the evil one. So welcome to our series, 
on why are you so ambivalent about Jesus coming back? 